Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to read to you a passage in just a second to start. This is a Q&A session. Uh, Q means you can ask a question. Uh, A means... I can give an answer. It doesn't mean I'll answer every question, nor does it mean I know the answer to every question, but we can talk about them and figure them out together. Uh, glad you were able to pick up a Constitution. Just a quick comment uh, about that. Uh, Constitution Day is something we participate in because you are able to receive Title IV funds from the federal government to help you with your education, and it's part of our obligation to uh, the, the uh, federal government to do that, to provide you with a reminder of how important it is to participate in our government. That said, it is incredibly important. The Constitution is a really important document for us. It's a formal part of our social contract. We're in this country together. We recognize a supreme law of the land, so to speak, in the Constitution. It's important to know about it. I hope you do. It's not sacred at all in the same sense that we would talk about scriptures being sacred. You get that, right? Because we're not always aware of that. We treat the Constitution sometimes as if it were inerrant, infallible, you know, inspired, uh, as if it's some kind of scripture. It's not. It is, even in the minds of those who crafted it, just the best we could do to come up with a way that we could cooperate uh, when we became a nation. Ben Franklin said that's the only reason he was willing to vote for it. So you get the idea, right? So let's keep things in their proper place and say these are really important things for us to study and to learn and to know about, but they're not the same as Scripture. When we come to Scripture, we just bow our knee and say, Lord, what would you teach me? And whatever he wants to teach is what we ought to learn. And so I'm, I'm going to share a Scripture with you to start out. This is why I'm saying this. And it's a Scripture that transformed my life in some ways, I think, for good, and in some ways way, made it way, way harder uh, and so I'm just going to share it with you uh, because not all of us are uh, aware of these things. We don't necessarily think about them. It's a really important teaching to me. It's been formative for uh, the last 20 years or I'll say 15 years or so of my ministry and life. And so I just want everybody to be aware of it. A lot of you are new students, and so you wouldn't know this was a priority to me. You might not understand why these things come about uh, in our school the way that we do them. So I'm going to read to you. It's out of Hebrews 13, uh, if you were looking at my Bible that I'm carrying, which is a King James. This is the, the only uh, carryable Bible that I have that's not in my tablet. So when you see me preaching with a tablet, it's because I prefer to preach from the ESV. And I don't have a good ESV version uh, in print. So I carry my tablet with me instead and work on that. So from the King James, which is what I learned when I was growing up, and it's what I'm most comfortable with anyway, just in terms of quoting things. 
in Hebrews 13, just the first couple of lines, I want to point out something to you you may not have noticed. And all of this is to make a quick point and then to open up the floor to anything you want to talk about. It doesn't have to be related to this at all. This is just my spurring for you to think about it. The scriptures are prominently narrative. They're just one story after another. Uh, it is the most significant portion of scripture, narratives, stories. And so when we read the New Testament or when we teach from the New Testament equally, we tend to take it in isolation and act as if the teachings are somehow severed from all of those narratives or from the second greatest portion of Scripture, which is poetry, you know. So you put those two together and you have 75, 80% of Scripture. And then you have these dinoetic passages where people are just explaining things. And if you can just understand what they say, then you get the point of it, right? So the narratives are not quite that way. You have to put them together. They're very, you know, you get to the end and you just have to figure out how am I supposed to make a meaning of this? But you don't do it randomly. There's a method to use and you follow it. And if you follow that method, then it leads to certain conclusions that are just as prescriptive as the conclusions we draw from these types of passages that are instructive. And so I want to make the point that this passage definitely comes from a narrative in the Old Testament that forms a lot of the other narratives in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that we don't necessarily automatically think of. And so I just want to make sure you recognize two words. It's just two words. That's all we got to get to. So the first word is in verse 1 of Romans 13. Let, and you're going to tell me this word, and you're going to tell it to me in Greek, and you're going to tell it to me in Greek even though you haven't taken Greek yet. In other words, if you've taken Greek and you know this word because you already studied it with Dr. Moore or somebody else, then don't answer right away. It's too easy for you. If you have not taken Greek, but you can figure out what this word is in Greek, then I want you to tell me the answer. Do you all understand the complexities of that instruction? It is, if you have not taken Greek, I want you to tell me this Greek word. Brotherly love. It's pretty simple right? Okay. Let brotherly love continue. That's all it says. That's the whole first verse. It's just three words in Greek. So what's the Greek word for brotherly love? Who would like to take a venture? If you give it a shot, if you even give it a try, even if you're just close, I'm going to give you full credit. Full credit means not even as much as it does in the Mexican Loteria we'll be participating in later. Uh, I think I have a, do I have a candidate here? I mean, you're smiling. I'm taking it as a bid. Would you uh, mind bringing her a microphone? Or yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Jocelyn. Yes? Is it phileo? You've got the or, first half of the word. Philadelphia is got the it. city. There you got it. Philadelphia. Nice and so. Thank you very much. Oh, come on, give her a hand. What are you holding back for? Absolutely. She could come up and take a bow. She would deserve it. Thank you very much for taking that venture. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. This seems completely unrelated. And don't forget to entertain strangers. That's not King James. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Whether you've taken Greek or not, you can answer this one. What's the word for entertaining strangers? I mean... It just sounds so strange. Let brotherly love continue and have parties for weirdos, you know. <laughs> so what's the Greek word for 
entertain strangers. Anybody? What do you think? Just get close. I mean, you can do the part she did, right? You can guess the first half of the word at least. What's the first half? It's one word. Anybody? First half? Can I get a bid? Get a bid? Got a bid? Got a bid? Got a bid? What are you all afraid of? I'm going to give you credit. If you'll just mumble something, I'll pretend like you got it right. <laughs> Phil, yes, Phila, Phileo, just like she said. So, Phila, and then what's the last half of the word? So, have you heard of people who are afraid of strangers? Do you know what they're called? Do you know what we say about them? When somebody's afraid of people who are not like them, do you know what that's called? What kind of phobia is it? They're what phobic? Xenophobic. That's the last half of the word. Philoxenos. Philoxenia. Philoxenia. If you take the two verses together, it's pretty obvious what he's saying. Love the people who are like you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love those who are part of your family. Love those you know. And then in verse 2, oh, and don't forget to love strangers, the people who are not like you, the outsiders. Because by loving outsiders, some people... Now, do you think he's just saying this randomly? Like, now forget the Bible. We're not talking about the history of Israel in a book called Hebrews or anything that happened to Abraham or anybody like that. Forget all of that and just make up some. No, of course, he's got Abraham in mind and he's got the history of Israel in mind. Because in loving strangers, he says, some have entertained, and he uses this the same invitation to treat outsiders, you know, however you treat outsiders, without the word loving, have entertained, have invited in and hosted angels. Well, you know, when did strangers show up who were angels and were received by somebody who was rewarded strictly because they received those angels? It's not, not hard. I mean, it's not rocket science. Abraham did it, you know, in Genesis 18. We know that story. That's easy. Angels show up at his tent, and he bows down and invites them in and feeds them, and as a reward, they tell him he and Sarah are going to have a child, and they laugh about it, and then they're corrected about it, and then they stop laughing about it, and then he says, oh, and I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if things are like they are coming up to me in heaven to be. Now, you think God doesn't know for sure, whether the things that have come up to heaven from Sodom and Gomorrah are really so? You think he's uncertain about what his knowledge entails? Or is he going to test them to see if they really are as bad as they have been? And so he sends the angels down to them and says, are you going to welcome me in or not? When they show up in the city, not somebody from Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot meets them. And Lot says, come on in, because he's Abraham's nephew. He's just like Abraham. Oh, bow down, come in. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. They say, no, 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 we're not here to test you. We're here for the people of this city. So let's wait and see if they invite us in. 
course, we all know they do the opposite of inviting them in. You can watch the movie Deliverance and figure out how all that goes, which I don't encourage you to do, but whatever. You get the story. You know the rest of the story. The rest of the story isn't about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about the difference between Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah, between Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why Lot leaves the city, and he's part of the people of God, and the judgment follows. And if you say, what's the, what's the thing that God judges civilizations for? It's for how they treat strangers. It's how they treat outsiders. Now, why ever you think that is, we could go on for weeks talking about this subject matter, one of the most important in the Bible. It's one of the most important things that comes up anywhere. If you read the story of the poor man lying at the gates of Dives, the rich man, and then Dives going to hell and the, and, and the poor man being taken up Lazarus into heaven, if you read that story and don't recognize it in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're just not familiar enough with the stories. I mean, that's why he's in Abraham's bosom. It's Abraham. Abraham is the one looking over Sodom and Gomorrah when they're destroyed and seeing the smoke rise from them. That's how we're told the story in the Old Testament. It's one of the most important stories there. It's one of the qualifications for being a pastor. Do you think pastors just have to know how to throw parties? And yet, they have to be phylloxenos. They have to be lovers of strangers, outsiders. That's a qualification to be a minister. So this study, Matthew 10, Luke 10, sending out the disciples and em emulating them showing up, not randomly, two by two, just like the angels that show up at Sodom and Gomorrah, two by two, going city to city and going into cities and then finding out whether the city is willing to receive them or not receive them and then pronouncing on them the judgment of Sodom, literally the words, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah on them if they reject those messengers when they come. All of those things sort of transform you into understanding that we're not allowed simply to talk about our Christianity as a club that we're in and that others aren't in. And we're not allowed to lose, use all the clubs that we're in as a shelter to keep our Christianity separate from other people, whether our clubs are about Christianity or not. We can't do that. We have to love people who are different from us. One of the best things about being in college is that you get to be exposed to people who are not like you at all. They don't share your politics. They don't share your background. They don't share your race. They don't share your knowledge. You know, everything about them is different, and yet you learn to love them. It's, it's, it's a huge benefit to being in an environment like this, and so I hope, you, I hope you benefit from that. And I hope you understand that though some of those things are fundamental to why I do the things that I do here at this school and the reason I do them the way I do. So I just wanted you to have some of that background. If it doesn't make any difference to you, then you can just go, well, that was weird that we did a Q&A and he sent, spent 10 minutes talking about that. Or, if it does, then I hope it affects the way you relate to the next person who doesn't celebrate the same holidays or speak with the same accent or vote the same way uh, that you do, or just has a different background. So there you go. Have I stifled any questions that are present, or can we find a question today? So you don't have to talk about this subject at all. I wanted to bring it up because not everybody's familiar with the topic, and it's hugely important to me. So anybody? Uh, yes, we've got a question towards the back. Thank you, sir. This, it makes me nervous when I know that you already had a question stored up, like you were ready to go. So go ahead. I hope I don't disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're friends on Facebook, which I think is pretty Aww, cool. Aw, thank um, you. And you always post um, 
with your telescope looking at stars and planets uh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so I was just wondering, is this like an official hobby? And if it is, <laughs> how did that get started and uh, why do you like doing that? Thank you for asking that question. Uh, this, is, uh, this is really kind of you to ask. Uh, it is a hobby. It's a, it's, a, it's a handy hobby for me because it can't interfere with what I do here at the school and all the, all the other work that I have to do, like when I'm serving a church, because you can really only do it overnight. So, you know, you have to do it overnight. And you can only do it, when, only do it well when there's a new moon, which is only once a month. And then with the new moon, I have to think this. Not only does there have to be a new moon, the new moon has to be now on Thursday night, Friday night. Oh, and it has to come when the skies are clear. So it's almost impossible to do. So only about three or four times a year do I actually get to set up and do what I want to do with my telescope. On some weekends, I can set it out in my backyard and get a picture of Jupiter or something like that because those are so bright, you know, it doesn't matter whether the moon's out or not. You didn't ask for all those details, but I'm just telling you. So when I was three years old, my parents took me to McDonald Observatory out in West Texas. We, were, we lived in West Texas at the time. I lived in Crane, Texas. And it's a, you know, it's a huge observatory in the UT system uh, out in West Texas. So we went out there, and from then forward, I've been just fascinated with the night sky. I had a small telescope when I was a very young parent. We'd set it up in the front yard and get a look at Saturn, and, you know, it would be a dot with rings around it. And that was enough to keep me out at night with my telescope, with my kids, and just uh, loved spending the time under the heavens. Uh, so I'll say all of that and say, but then, you know, about... Ten years ago now, 2013, uh, I had the opportunity to acquire a telescope that's bigger and has, uh, you know, a little bit more reach to it and some equipment to go with it. And then uh, somebody gave me a camera that I could attach to the, to the telescope and started doing astrophotography, which allows you to see things you can't see with naked eye. So I love all of that. And I enjoy doing it. But here's the thing. My relationship with astronomy, with astrophotography, I'm not an astronomer, I'm not good enough to do that. I'm, I'm just an astrophotographer and I'm just aesthetic in that sense. It's not like scientific, I'm not that good. But it's really important to me to spend time under the sky in, and, in this, it, it, and it's exactly like this. When I write a sermon or when I do a Bible study, I'll open the Bible and I read the passage and I study it. And, I, and by the way, always come to a conclusion different than what I thought the passage was going to say. I've never, I've never had an experience where I genuinely studied a passage beginning to end and said, yep, that's what I thought it was going to say. What I find out is that I've been wrong my whole life, just about everything, almost everything. I do that. I'll study a whole passage. It generally takes me, if, if, if I'm just focused on that, nothing else, it'll take me four or five hours and then I'm done, you know. And I feel like it's taken about 30 minutes, you know, just like that. It's gone. I love it. I love it. And I love studying scripture because it is unchanging. You know, it's dependable. It's eternal. Generations for thousands of years have relied on its words. Same thing happens to me in the night sky. So the heavens are not eternal. They'll pass away. I get it. God will fold them up, you know, like a blanket. I get that. But they are as close as we get to something that's eternal in the material world. And so my encounter with the night sky is just like that. I go out, I set up my telescope, I start looking at the sky, and 30 minutes later, it's dawn, you know. And so I love uh, the encounter with the things that are immutable. And I know the heavens are not immutable, 
but they're close, and they're a reminder of how transient the things in this world is. And there's something in my, something in my makeup that really values that. So in the same way I'm drawn to Scripture, I think I'm drawn to the heavens. So that's where it comes from. Thanks for asking, brother. Appreciate it. Very kind of you. Yes, sir, we got a question right over. Oh, and then we'll come back there, but let's go here first. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Good day, Dr. Creamer. Good day. God bless you and your family. Thank you, brother. I have a question to the scripture. Of, okay. Um, loving your brothers and, and loving your strangers. But in your experience, how have you dealt with loving an enemy as Jesus has commanded us? Uh, yeah. People that are ungrateful, how do you find yeah. a way? When deep down you probably don't like them. How do you find a way oh, to it's love? not even deep down. It's right here. <laughs> you know, it is right I, here, I deal brother. with it daily at the mission. It's a lot of ungrateful people. Yeah. You know God has commanded you to yeah, love yeah, them. The Holy sure. Spirit will say, love them, love them. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with that? Love so got, your enemies. I got two, th- uh, two things to say. I'll, well, I'll make it three. I'll add a first one. The first one is poorly. I do it poorly. Uh, so that's the first thing. But now I'll say two meaningful things to it. Uh, number one is the whole calling of, you know, the, the central value of our school when we say, what do we want graduates to be like when they finish here? The graduate profile is to be peacemakers. Being peacemakers entails how we relate to our enemies. And, you know, the exact language we use is to pursue mercy, to pursue truth and righteousness through mercy and reconciliation. Reconciliation means with enemies. You know, that's inherently present. So that's our calling. So I view it as essential that we do exactly what you said. Of course, the fact that it's essential and we're supposed to do it doesn't mean we do it, but at least that's our goal. We want to relate to the enemy in a way that says, no, 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 you're not my enemy. I want to proclaim truth and righteousness, but do it with mercy and with the goal of reconciliation in mind. That's, I think, what James is talking about, you know, when he says not all of you can be teachers, not all of you can be masters, because what you're doing by saying I'm going to be your teacher is saying you're the problem and I'm going to correct you. And he says that doesn't do any good. The 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 uh, things that come from below, the things that are sensuous and devilish, to use the King James language, the things that come from below are that envy and despite and the judgment that we pronounce on others. But he says uh, the the uh, the fruit that's from above is merciful and kind and reconciling and all of those things that come down to the statement because he says at the conclusion of James three, the fruit of righteousness. So if we're actually pursuing righteousness, it says the fruit of righteousness, the actual product of righteousness is sown in peace from those who make peace. So it does no good for us to go around wagging our finger at people and judging them, even when they're completely wrong. The, the, the enemy, you know, the only thing that can be meaningful is if we approach them saying, my goal with you is to bring you into peace, to bring you into fellowship, you know? So that's number one. It is a priority, and that's why you asked the question. So I haven't really said anything to you that's helpful yet. But the second thing that I think hopefully will be helpful is this is not like an ancillary part of our Christianity, you know. So I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be a minister, I'm going to serve in a classroom, or I'm going to serve in a church, but I'm going to be the Christian presence that says I'm going to serve people, and they're going to be grateful for it, and I'm going to be humble in doing it, and I'm going to have some enemies and people slapping me on the face, but I'm going to be serving all these others, and I can, you know, I can keep the slaps away, and I'll live with it. That's not what Christianity's about. The whole nature of Christianity is that every messianic figure who's called, every single one, starting with the the, the one that's most obvious to us is Moses, but it starts before that, even with Abraham. 
But the most obvious one is Moses. When Moses is called, you remember how reluctant he is. He says no four different times. He asks questions about it. He says, I can't do it because of this and that. I mean, who, why would I go? Why do I need to go? And, and, and in every objection, God doesn't give him an answer that's satisfying. He says, why should I go? And God says, I'll go with you. Well, if it's you that matters, go with someone else, you know. And then he says, but who am I going to tell them you are? And he says, I'm the God of the covenant. Well, you're the God of the covenant whether I'm there or not. And in fact, I haven't even circumcised my children. So why, why on earth would you have me go? And then he says, and I'm not good at speaking. And God says, I don't need your stinking mouth. I make mouths. I don't need your mouth. Into which you would think if you're Moses, you would say, well, then don't take my mouth. Just leave me here. But instead, he finally gives in and God says, I'm going to send you anyway. Why does he send him? Because Moses already knows, because he's already, it's already happened to him. Moses already knows all of those people are going to reject him. All of them. They already rejected him. That's why he left and went to Midian to begin with. The whole point is that God wants the person who's been rejected by them to go back to them and to lead them into a relationship with him, which he's going to do as they continue to reject him. One, one step at a, he'll go up on the mountain and they'll reject him. They'll make a calf. Everything he does, they'll reject him one time after another. They'll gather up in groups, Corin, Dathan, and Abiram, and they'll come and stand against him and say, why are you making yourself so important? Shouldn't we? We're all the people of God. We all ought to be able to do it. One time after another, they reject him. And yet, he, and he doesn't even get to go into the promised land with them. He lays, this is the line I use to explain this all of the time, and it's exactly what the Old Testament and New Testament describe about what it means to be Christ, which, is, which ought to mean to us what it means to be us, because we're supposed to be little Christs. That's the whole point. We're all messianic figures. We're all supposed to follow Christ. And this is what it means to be messianic. It means to lay down your life on behalf of the very people who are trampling over it on their way to finding God. That's what we do. And if we don't start there, then we will all get frustrated and quit what we're supposed to be doing in serving the Lord. So I strongly encourage all of us to learn to get on our knees. The, the, character, the way I usually introduce this topic and talk about it is by saying, what are the characteristics that you think of when you think of the Messiah? You know, and people think of merciful and powerful and reconciling and instructive. You know, he's the master, he's the whatever, peacemaker, all of those things. But nobody ever says in Christian circles, unless I've been there before, nobody ever says reluctant. Every messianic figure is reluctant. Moses doesn't want to do it. Esther doesn't want to do it. Jeremiah doesn't want to do it. Jonah doesn't want to do it. Job doesn't want to do it. Every messianic figure is reluctant. Why are they reluctant? Because they understand what the calling entails. It's why Jesus says what he does to people who say they want to follow him. I want to follow you. What does he say? No, you don't. You don't want to follow me. The birds have nests. The foxes have holes. I don't even have that. You think you want to follow me? You don't want to follow me? He's telling them to be reluctant because they don't understand what they're about to get involved in. And he does the same thing when the disciples say it. Oh, we'll follow you wherever you go. He says, nah, if a man doesn't die to himself and take up his own cross, he can't be my follower. 
right? So he's telling us, if you, if you understand Christianity, you should rethink it. But then embrace the sacrifice that goes with it. If, how does, you know, this is Second Timothy's quotation of the early church hymn. If we sang it, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Right? That's what he says. It's not random suffering. It's not suffering because you happen to get into the wrong group. It's because the only route to redemption for others is when someone lays down their life for them while they're the ones who are taking it. <laughs> you know, that's what Jesus does, and that's what we're called to do. It's a tough lesson, isn't it? That's why you have to love outsiders, too. You know, that's encouraging, isn't it? It really is. It's a beautiful life. That's a beautiful life. You see it on movies all the time. Even lost, secular, completely humanistic thinkers recognize that that's what a messianic figure is about. That's why your favorite hero in the movie can't get married and keep a wife, right? If he gets married, she's going to get killed or divorce him one because he can't have his own life. He's got to lay it down for everybody else. He's got to be treated like he's the enemy. Watch it. You'll see. Why does everybody else know that and not us? We're the ones it's supposed to be about. So I love your questions. Brilliant question. Beautiful question. Thank you. Do you have any follow-up? Do you want to say anything else about it? Okay. Yeah, I answered, beat a dead horse. That's what he just said. No, you beat that one into the ground. You can let it go now. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Yes, we had one over here. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, Uh-oh. It's hey, Cy. Careful. Uh, this is completely unrelated, but... Um, That's fine. That's where we're going. Yeah, I just want to, you know, know a little bit more about our president. And so Maybe. my question is, what, uh, what makes you happy and what makes you sad? <laughs> simple, yeah. simple question. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, you can get as deep as you want, you know, yeah, whatever no. you feel. What makes me sad is realizing how long it took me to take scriptures that I believed in. I really did believe. I believed my whole life. It makes me very sad to know how long it took me to read what they were saying in truth and be willing to say it regardless of the cost. It took me forever to get there. And I thought I was courageous and bold, but really I was just kind of going with the crowd in the crowd that I was in, which all were, you know, Bible-loving, you know, committed Christians and very committed people, very faithful, fine people. But for me, it kept me from being as honest with the Scriptures as I should have been. So the sad part's easy. I just look at my own life and say, Lord, I am so sorry that it took me this long uh, to get to where I'd be willing at least to start stepping out where you want me to step out and speak for you. And what makes me happy, I think I was also saying earlier, what makes me happy is when I'm looking at the things that are eternal, and I know, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what's happening in anybody's life right now and everything else, when I know that God really is, you know, as... Um, if I can get the right name, Robert Browning would say, still on his throne, you know, uh, that it is okay because the Lord is the one who's sovereign. Uh, there's tremendous peace in that, just knowing that God is in charge, you know. 
Uh, so that brings me joy. There are other things that bring me joy. Candy corn brings me joy. Uh, it does, and this is the right season for that. So, you know, there you go. So thanks for asking, Cy. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Back in the back. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. Well, I was, you know, she had the mic. Hello? Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, my question is... Yeah, way uh, to brag about your voice there. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> That's a nice voice, man. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, my question is, uh, do you have any heroes of... Christian heroes that have lived, uh, maybe uh, dead or alive, like that are have been Christian, um, could be current or could be that they're no longer with us. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, most of the Christian heroes that I would think of are either dead or alive. So I'll start there <laughs> and say that that's fair enough. Um, you know, so it, this is a hard question for me. Uh, and I'm embarrassed uh, that I, you know, that I don't do what everybody else does. I think very effectively and meaningfully. I think it's meaningful that they're able just to pop off the names of their three favorite preachers and, you know, four or five people that had the greatest impact on their lives. The people that really sh that, that really convicted me about my Christianity were James Weir, my early pastor. Nobody would know him but me. But when I was a kid and he was he, he was faithful his entire life. And later when I was an adult, so I was saved when I was nine years old under his ministry. He's the one who baptized me and he went to camp with us and he modeled for me when I was very young what Christianity really ought to look like. He had been a Marine, but he was the kind he's not the kind that's out there like everybody bow to the flag. He was a Marine who didn't want to talk about it but wanted instead for people to know he cared about following Jesus, you know? He was never ashamed that he was a Marine, but he'd been through a tough time. So I, all of that really had an influence on me, and his faithfulness was tremendous. And what happened was I left his church when I turned 16, and the Lord sort of beat me about the head and neck with a different religious experience for a little while. And then when I went into ministry, uh, into full-time pastoral ministry when I was 23 years old, uh, I, you know, was involved actively in pastoring a church for 17 years. But when I was 40 and left that church, I needed to go to a church. So I went to another church in town while it, when I started teaching here. I went to another church in town in Arlington. Lamar Baptist Church is what it was. And he was the senior adults pastor there. And it was, again, like this guy is the model for me of what a Christian ought to, ought to live like. So just him personally, that's an easy one for me to point out and say, I sort of look at him, even when I had crises while I was pastoring, I would call him and say, what should I do about this? You know, what am I supposed to do? So for me, just the faithfulness of somebody that I was able to rub elbows with and know personally, you know, is why I consider him that way. And then the other person I would pick, you're going to think this is like a trivial answer. It's sort of like the Jesus answer, right? Um, but for me, it is is John the Baptist. I just think everything that, uh, that, I, that I identify with that makes ministry powerful and meaningful is what John the Baptist was willing to do. You know, I love, I love him as the model, which is why I love Elijah, you know, as a model. And I know that, again, that sounds trivial because they're biblical examples, but they're real people. And, and John the Baptist put his head on the platter for us, you know, uh, to, to, to receive this message that would come from the one who followed him. So 
I love, I love his testimony. I love the standing across the river and proclaiming the message to the people who don't want to hear it kind of model. I'm not there. I'm nothing like that. I'm not worthy of being compared. I wouldn't pretend that I could be compared. But that would be an ideal for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I like him. Anyway, that's a great question. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer. Uh, there are some great sacrificial Christians. And there are some people like I can think of who I just know personally who have given up everything in order to just follow the Lord where he leads them. And I love that. I admire that every time I see it. So thank you for the question. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer. Yes, <laughs> he almost put his voice in the mic again. And thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, oh, you got one right up here, and then we'll get the one in the back. And then we'll stop pretty soon. I realize it's 1145. Yeah, yes. So my question is, you, say you started taking the, the Bible in a certain way more seriously yeah. with their context and everything. What are some of the behaviors or activities or, yeah. or hobbies that you stopped doing when you've started to take the Bible for real? Well, one of them was I stopped thinking that the way I would measure my moral worth was in a list of things that I did and didn't do. Uh, I think before I took the Bible seriously, I sort of followed this moralistic view of how Christianity is expressed. You know, when I was in high school, I remember starting, I didn't, for, fortunately I didn't stop it, I mean I didn't finish it, but I started a list of things so that I could have a list and say, you know, I want to know if I'm doing these things, then I can say, at least I'm headed the right direction. And if I'm doing these things, I can say, wow, I've really become carnal again, you know, or something like that. I started doing that and I, and, and the, I don't know if it came from the Holy Spirit or just from, you know, stopping being stupid. But the word Pharisee popped into my head, and I went, oh, yeah, that doesn't really work, does it? Uh, supposed to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So even then, when I hadn't figured out that Christianity is not just a moralistic list of things you do and don't do, uh, I realized that that wasn't where I wanted to be. And I, and so, but I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you what changed. What changed was those passages, Luke 10, Matthew 10, uh, Genesis 18 and 19, Judges 19, First uh, Timothy three with the hospitality thing, Hebrews thirteen, uh, all the episodes in Scripture, including Luke sixteen, that deal with Di Lazarus and Dives, but other accounts in the New Testament that are actually replications of that experience of the person who's in need, lying at the gate, waiting at the gate to be invited in by the people who have what they need and being accepted or rejected. All of that was the first step in me going, oh man, you know, I mean, and, and my dissertation was half on ethics. It's on the, it, it's on self and morality. So ethics is about morality. And then the, the self is understanding how uh, individuals are conceived of or persons are conceived of in a certain culture. So it's a huge worldview uh, influence, the way you think about the world. And so I wrote about self and morality and moral atrocities in the 20th century. So in American discourse about moral atrocities in the 20th century, that's what my dissertation was about. So I care about ethics. And so I should have known right away because I know what ethics is. Ethics is social. It's not personal. It's always social. It's always about your relationship with other people. It's not, you know, do you have a personal list of virtues that you've obtained and now you're okay? If the virtues are not in the context of what they mean to your community and they mean to other people, then they don't mean anything. And that's why virtue ethics in the contemporary world is so difficult. You don't want an ethic. You, you, you didn't ask for a lecture on ethics. I'm sorry, I'm wandering aside here. But I'm coming. I'm coming. If you'll hang with me. He hasn't gone to sleep yet. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to get close to putting you there. Uh, when you think about ethics instead of as something personal, 
and you think of them as God's requirement for you in your relationship with others, then you make sense of Jesus saying, well, what's the great commandment? You know, loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And when he's quoting that, you know, in, in Leviticus 19, the, the last half of that, from Leviticus 19, he's quoting a passage from which Hebrews 13 gets its content. The passage in Leviticus 19 is, you should love your neighbor, but you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you're starting in the center. You automatically love yourself. There's no, there's no prescription to do that. You already do it. You should love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And then he ends the chapter by saying, and you should love the stranger as one who's born among you. You should love the outsider in the same way. Those are all, those, that's what Jesus says when he says, what's your test for whether you're measuring up to the moral expectations of God on your life? They're about how you relate to other people inherently that way. And when they come to him and say, hey, what's the, you know, so who's my neighbor? He tells them the Samaritan story so that he can say, it's whoever God puts in your path that you can help, that you're supposed to be a part of their life. And so what happened with me, I'll give you the first, the, just the first part, and this is not at all the limitation of it, but the first part for me was realizing that I had read Scripture in a way that was so narrowly defined by my personal and cultural experience that I didn't understand the impact it should have on me relating to other people whose experiences were different from mine. And because I didn't relate to the experiences of people who were different from me and their experiences themselves were different from my experiences, uh, I just didn't, it didn't register with me when people said, you know, there's something wrong going on with uh, racism in our culture. There's something wrong going on at the border in the way we're treating people, you know, who are crossing it. It just did, I, I was, I was one of those people who was like, eh, they can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and solve their own problems, you know. They can, they can make it on their own just like I did as a privileged white man in this culture, you know. I appreciate you getting the irony. You're the only person who laughed in the whole room, but I do appreciate you getting it. That's the point. I used to joke about that at Texas Woman's University I would, when I was teaching there. I would say, you know, yeah, does our culture have some biases towards white males? Yeah, but, you know, it's worked out okay for me so far. Uh, and at least they laughed too. I never got fired for that there. Um, my point is it did, it, it changed me. And so when I started reading when I was willing to read um, literature from people whose experiences were different than mine and woke up to some of the accusations and claims that were being made and realized that they weren't just accusations, that they were descriptions of a harshness and an experience that I had just had my eyes closed to the whole time. Then suddenly I didn't become culturally woke. I didn't choose, you know, some theory I started talking to people whose background was different from me and instead of immediately saying, well, why don't you just fix that yourself? Started saying, maybe I could do something to help here. Maybe, maybe I could just change my own terrible attitude and it would help. And uh, it changed my relationships with people. So, and that's how I knew what Christ was doing in me was what he was doing in me and what the Holy Spirit was doing in me because it forced my relationships to be different, you know? uh, And I'm not good at relationships anyway. So uh, if he can change those, he can change anything in me. So I was grateful for that. So yeah, it affected my, and it, and it deep, it's, so it seriously affected, you know, I, I, I'll use this word. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, 
you know, not, not exactly the scriptural word we would use, but it just changed my empathy. Uh, it made me recognize what other people were going through. It's the very next, it's the very next, the very next words in Hebrews 13. You know, remember those who are in chains, who are in prison, as if you were bound with them because they're also with you. And that, for me, was an ability to say, I'm, I'm going to remember my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this one is about in Hebrews 13. I'm going to remember those who are going through things that we don't go through. Why are all the, why are all the metaphors in a, in a black church? Why are all the metaphors in the sermons? Why are all the expressions in their communications and their songs? Why are they so different? Why do they read the Moses account differently? Why do they read the freedom of Israel differently? If you haven't been to, to a black church, maybe you haven't heard it, but if you have, you know. You don't hear the same words in a white church that you hear in a black church. There's a reason for that. And it's a valid reason. And the idea that that shouldn't be the expression of Christianity in a black church is, I think, just a lack of understanding where that culture and community has been. So a lot of it's come out in the diversity discussions. But it's not just that, but that's the first one. That's, what that's the number one thing that changed in me. And, uh, you know, what shocked me in the process of that is just how challenging and difficult that is for everybody. And then what shocked me was that it took me 30 years of reading Scripture before I finally broke over and went, wait, you're saying I'm guilty? <laughs> you know, it took me 30 years. And then a year later, I'm like, what's wrong with all these people? Shouldn't they just change immediately? I mean, I told them the truth. Why aren't they there? And so I realized how permanently and persistently, debilitatingly judgmental I am. And so I'm trying to fix that too. That is harder for me than anything else. I'm, but I'm working on it. I'm going to be a peacemaker someday, right before I die, I'm sure. That moment. Yes, sir. So uh, did you want to follow up with something? You're, you're, you're like, no, you can stop. Please stop. Stop. Okay. Y'all, we're. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you, brother. Appreciate that. I mean, it's the only way you can be a believer, right? You, you have to get to a point where the Holy Spirit can convict you and make you guilty. And honestly, if you get to the point where you realize how guilty and how shallow we are uh, in our lives, it makes life a lot easier because when all those people reject you, like we were talking about a minute ago, you're like, you don't know the half of how bad I am. You should reject me a lot harder than you're rejecting me. Uh, and then it makes it easier when God says, yeah, but I don't. I, I accept you. I accept you even though you trampled me on your way to finding the Father. Um, that's, a, that's a lovely message in Christianity. All right, I'm going to pray with you all, and then we're going to be dismissed only because it's 11.55, and you got 20 minutes to eat lunch before you get to class at 12.15, right? So 20 if I give a short prayer, so I will. Amen. You're dismissed. That's the shortest prayer I've got. God bless you all. Have a great day. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.